We're going to keep trucking forward, really looking at and answering this question, how do we open up our Bibles and hear God talk to us? And I didn't, I didn't say it in this way last week, but the reason I phrase it that way is I think for many people, that's the core question. When we talk about reading scripture, engaging in the word, when we hear stories from, uh, you know, you hear the pastor talk about being in the word and God spoke to me and then you get a certain expectation and really it's a trick, it's a trick question. How do we open our Bibles and hear God speak to us? Well, we open our Bibles and read our Bibles correctly and we'll be able to hear God speak to us. It's, it's a trick question. It comes down to how we read the word. And last week we walked through and, and did two things. One, we said before we can even talk about how we read scripture, we've got to address the way we approach scripture. We've got to look at our convictions. What do we actually believe? And do we believe it firmly about the word? We've got to look at our attitude. That is, how do we act towards scripture? What, is, what are the ways we relate to scripture? What are our expectations? And in there, one of the things we, we saw clearly was we had this conviction that if all scripture is God-breathed, then one of the realities is it is understandable. Meaning that God is a God who desires to communicate and he desires to communicate with humans in such a way that we can actually understand what he's saying. He's not a God who tries to confuse. In fact, scripture says, he says of himself, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of order, a God of peace. Uh, I think of the Psalms where certainly it's using poetic imagery, but it says, you speak like thunder and lightning. Thunder and lightning are pretty hard to to mix up, especially if you're living back in that day with no insulated walls and doors and windows and you're outside. Like thunder and lightning is clear, it's evident. God speaks clearly. Now there are things in the word that are hard to understand because the word reveals God who is infinitely beyond us. So there are certainly things that are hard to understand and from that standpoint at times we may feel confused but there is nothing in the word that is intended to be some kind of secretive. Um, the Bible isn't national treasure. And I don't know, maybe that's a horrible movie reference, but uh, the Bible is not you know, national treasure. Let's steal the declaration and put 800 different kinds of lemon juice on the back and bake it in an oven and put different colored goggles on and we're gonna see five different messages. That's not how God communicates. Clearly, so there's this way we approach scripture that then as we open up our Bibles, there's, there's three simple aspects. We said observation, interpretation, and application. Last week we walked through observation. The idea is Psalm 119, open my eyes, O Lord, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. And we walked through how do we just open up a passage, read it, and begin to just make observations. Just see it and see and, and begin to glean from it. And the more that we observe, the more thorough our observation, the better job of interpreting correctly we're gonna to come to. And so we come tonight to really the key aspect of how we relate with scripture, which is interpretation. How do I understand rightly what I'm reading? Or better put, what does it mean? What is what I'm, what I'm reading in scripture? What does it mean? So if you got your Bibles, let me just give you two biblical examples of why interpretation is important. Uh, go to Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter eight. Philip's been engaged. This is the evangelist Philip, not the disciple Philip. The evangelist Philip's been engaged in a revival in Samaria. The Holy Spirit's just taken him out from Samaria and put him on a back, uh, backwoods desert road in the middle of nowhere. 
And in Acts 8, 26, Acts 8, 26, it says this, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up, go south to the road that descends. So 27, he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen, uh, queen of the Ethiopians, uh, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning and sitting in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up, join his chariot. So Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Of course, remember last week we talked about observing. One of the ways to help us observe would be to read scripture out loud. There's a great example. Reading in our minds is a relatively new thing. Here's the, here he is, he's sitting in his chariot, he's reading Isaiah out loud. And look at Philip's question in verse 30. Do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And of course, the story goes on from there. He's reading out of Isaiah and Philip is able to walk through and help him understand what Isaiah is saying. And Isaiah is pointing to Christ and ultimately it ends with the eunuch coming to faith in Christ. Now, flip back with me to the left two books to the end of the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke chapter 24 Luke 24, this is after the resurrection and Jesus appears to two men on the road to Emmaus and they're talking about everything that's gone on. Jesus has been crucified in the previous three days and he's risen and they're talking about it. In verse 19, Jesus playing dumb says, what things? So they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word and in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. And so they go on and they describe all of this. And they get to the fact that some people are saying the tomb is empty, but then look in verse 25. Look at Jesus' response. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Both those men on the road to Emmaus had the same problem that the rest of the Jewish people had, which is they knew the scriptures, they had read the scriptures, they were thoroughly acquainted with the word and with observation, but they had failed to interpret them correctly, which is why they are literally walking with the risen Christ that all of the Old Testament points towards and they don't have a clue. You see, interpretation is the key reality to how do we open up our Bibles and hear God speak to us. If you and I read and observe many things, but we don't interpret scripture correctly, then we fall into a danger zone. The goal of all interpretation is to understand what did God mean when he wrote it. And so let me just make a real overarching statement. When it comes to interpretation, there is only one correct interpretation. There may be a multitude of applications, but there is only one correct interpretation. Why do we say that? Because when someone sits down and writes a letter, this week I wrote quite a few cards to Bethany for Valentine's Day because I got a little crazy in the store the other day and found a lot of fun Valentine's cards. When I wrote those cards, every one of those cards has multiple words in it. Some of them say this, some of them say that. All of them say nice things in case you're concerned. 
but all of them only have one meaning, the meaning that I meant when I wrote it. So it doesn't matter who reads it and says, well, I think West meant this, right? Doesn't matter, I wrote it. It has one, there's one right interpretation of those words. Same thing with, the, with, with scripture. There's only one right interpretation. Our goal then is to understand what did the author mean when they wrote it and how was it supposed to be understood by the people it was originally written to. So there's two rules of interpretation just right off the bat. A text can never, cannot mean what it never could have meant to its writer and its readers. A text cannot mean something that it could never have meant back when it was written and who it was written to. Second rule is this, whenever we share comparable particulars, meaning whenever there's aspects of life that we find commonality there, then what God's word spoke to them is the same as what he is speaking to us. Now understand this, the reality of Interpreting scripture is sometimes there are certain issues we see multiple interpretations on. And that shouldn't trouble us. One, scripture's real clear that it can be interpreted wrongly, which can lead to differences of opinion and, and, and wrong interpretations and wrong opinions are, are wrong. But scripture's honest about the fact that people are gonna twist and, 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 and turn and move and, and interpret scripture in ways that aren't right. So on major things, on clear things, on things scripture is, is, is clear as day, there's no question on it, we stand against those. But there are some things like the rapture. I jokingly made a comment Sunday, what is my position on the rapture? We'll see when it happens. <laughs> or if it doesn't happen. Here's why I say that, because if I'm really guided by proper hermeneutics, am I guided by proper tools to interpret scripture. About every time I become really convicted one direction, I encounter one part of scripture. I go, well, if I'm being honest with that though, I can't square it. Here's, here's what I know. I know the Lord's coming back. I know the Lord's going to take care of us as his people. And that's what I'm counting on because those things are clear. And if the rapture happens, great. And if the rapture doesn't happen, then the Lord will see me faithfully through to whatever my end is, whether that's seeing him return or whether that's uh, being killed and going to heaven before then. So there's some things, it's okay, but it's, uh, here's the reality. The reason there's different interpretations there is not because the Bible has an issue, it's because you and I have limited knowledge. Differences in interpretation are fine as long as we keep in mind the conflict is not in the text, but it's our limited understanding of the text. God is never confused about what he said. Okay, so these are our background as we jump in. Now, your sheets, you got a sheet. If you picked up a new one, you discovered it's the same as last week. That's intentional. It's intended to be just kind of a generic sheet for all three of these weeks. I'm in the process of figuring out exactly there's, there's a... As I, as I joked with Debbie today, the notes I've got for tonight, I've got to figure out between what's on your page there for interpretation and the seven pages of my notes should be a cheat sheet and I'm not there yet. So instead of giving you something terrible, just know it's coming. Six pitfalls. When it comes to interpretation, here is six errors that are commonly made. One is misreading the scripture. This is why observation is so important. This is why you should read a passage and reread a passage and re-re-read a passage and you should read it out loud. Why, why did my dad drill into me that when you write a paper, you should proofread that paper out loud every time? Because you catch errors that your mind doesn't pick up when you have to read it out loud. Now there's not errors in the text, but you and I can misread the text. 
you get a little drowsy, your baby woke up five times the night before, you're trying to have a quiet time, you're reading in John 14 and you read, Jesus says, I am a way, the truth, and the life. That's a problem. Because that means if Jesus is a way, there can be multiple, what other ways are there? What other ways up the mountain of God are there? It's not what it says, it says Jesus is the way. Okay, being real oversimplistic, but misreading the scripture is a, error of interpretation, distorting the scripture, which means to choose to ignore sound hermeneutics. There are sound ways that the church, the, the, the church who rightly proclaims the risen Lord has always interpreted scripture. There are sound ways we walk through and do. We'll look at some of those tonight, but you can choose to ignore those. Choosing to ignore those would be things like Jehovah's Witness uh, emphasizing, yeah, we believe in that, but the only name of God is Jehovah, which is ironic since most likely Jehovah is actually the one name of God in scripture that was invented by man and not God. Or what I've seen commonly today, what has changed 10 and a half years ago when I finished college, around the conversation of homosexuality, what was the most common position is simply, your Bible has errors, God got it wrong. I don't hear that as much anymore, I hear something far more dangerous which is the Bible's not wrong, you're interpreting it incorrectly, here's the correct way to interpret those Greek words to see that God actually approves of homosexuality. And I can't tell you how many college students I've walked through, I can give you websites right now, you can pull up the whole, the nine, nine point case for the biblical argument for homosexuality. Now, you go through that argument, I can show you point for point where we've interpreted scripture wrongly, where we've taken, I'll give you a classic example. This is commonly going around with young people on, on um, uh, social media. It's a slide, it says, did you know the word homosexuality was not in our Bibles before the 1940s? Now that's a true statement. Here's what they don't tell you though. Yeah, the word homosexuality wasn't in there because that word wasn't the common word for that before then. Typically, we called it sodomy. Historically, because that's what this, those in Sodom were guilty of. It's not that, why was it that word not in the Bible before 1940? Because that word wasn't the word in popular culture that meant that prior to that. It ignores the fact, though, that regardless of that word, what is the Greek words? And one of the Greek words uh, is literally a word that means men lying in bed sexually with men. That's what it literally means. What is tried to do with that is, well, that refers to this specific situation instead of no, like if it referred to that specific situation, there would be other context to direct it there. It is not given that level of specificity, it's left here. So, so my point in, in giving you those is we can distort scripture by choosing to ignore sound principles of interpretation. We can contradict scripture. This would be twist, and this is tied to distorting scripture, but this is twisting God's word for sinful purposes. This is every time you see Satan attack. He's distorting scripture to get you to do something contradictory to scripture. It's every time, right? He quotes scripture to Jesus to get Jesus to do the opposite of what scripture says. That would be contradicting scripture. We see that and we can do that. 
We can be subjective with scripture. Oftentimes in, in American Christianity, I like how one, one, one writer puts it, we tolerate a form of mysticism in reading our Bibles that we would never allow in any other realm. We violate every tenet of reason and common sense when God does not shroud himself in unknowable mysticism. If when he wants to tell us something, he tells us, he doesn't confound us with nonsense. We see this. I mean, this is always the, the goofy example is uh, that tossed out at youth campus, right? It's the, uh, you know, God, I, God, I, I desperately want to hear from you. I desperately want to hear from you. Where should I turn? Oh, look, I've got a sweet picture from a child in our, in our church. That's, let me tuck that back there. Uh, for, let's see, here we go. My finger landed. For thus says the Lord to me, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey against which a band of shepherds is called out, he will not be terrified at their voice nor disturbed at their noise. As the lion growls, they will not be terrified. That means God wants me to go to the zoo and hop in the lion pen. Now that's absurd, but there's, that's how we get some of the nonsensical interpretations of scripture we have. Now listen, when I say this, can God take a verse of scripture and the Holy Spirit leap it off the page at you and speak to you personally in a way that's not all. Yeah, God can do that. But one, remember, God will never tell you anything with part of his word that contradicts another part of his word. So if what leaps off the page at you is to go, um, and David slew some Philistines, and that tells you, I've got the right, I'm gonna go physically attack somebody. False, God, Holy Spirit didn't say that to you. In fact, John would say, test the spirits. That spirit's not confessing Christ. You need to reject. That's a, that's a contradiction of scripture. But we, we tolerate this subjectivism. Can God speak personally? Absolutely. But even when he speaks personally, it's typically gonna mean we are still engaging and using our minds, interpreting and thinking and, 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 and processing through scripture rightly. See, the reality is the Bible doesn't yield its fruit to the lazy, and that includes when we're intellectually lazy when we just don't try to engage and meditate and process in there. We can be subjective. We can be relativistic with scripture, meaning we make scripture mean what we want it to mean. And these are all closely tied, understand that, but this is the probably greatest danger for all of us, but especially the younger we go. And here's why. Anybody in here ever heard of a term called literary deconstruction? It's not a new term, it's been around for a while, and it's a key tenet of the postmodern worldview. What literary deconstruction is, is this idea that words have no inherent absolute meanings. The only meanings that are in words are what you, the reader, ascribe to them. Now, it sounds, if that sounds mumble jumbo, let me tell you where and some of you may be old enough, this wasn't taught this way in your English class, but some of you in this room, you were taught this, you just didn't realize it. Have you ever been in an English class where you had to read a poem or you had to read some work of literature and when it comes time to discuss it, the teacher asks this question, what does it mean to you? That is literary deconstruction. It doesn't matter what that poem means to you, it matters what the writer meant when they wrote the poem. 
But the idea of literary deconstruction is there is no meaning because the words don't have any meaning. It only matters what it means to you. In fact, this is so prevalent and such a strong idea that studies say the majority of young people who leave the faith in college do not do so in their biology, sociology, or philosophy classes. They leave the faith in their English classes. Because if words have no inherent meaning, what is the primary way God speaks? Through his word. So let me tell you where this creeps into the church in ways that, hey, well, I'm not a heretic. Oh, yeah, you're not trying to be, but we're all being heretics when we do this. You're sitting in a Bible study. You read a verse. And the first discussion question is, all right, well, what's this verse mean to you? It doesn't matter what it means to you. And it doesn't matter what it means to me. It matters what it means to God because he wrote it. And listen, this idea is so heavy. And this is why I'm harping on it because I see it everywhere. And I, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if you've ever seen the movie, but the last of the Batman movies that Christopher Nolan directed, Dark Knight Rises 2012, it ends with this scene. And I'm assuming since it's been 10 years, if you hadn't seen it, I don't care if I spoil it for you, you've had ample opportunity. <laughs> So I don't want any nasty emails or phone calls. Pastor, why didn't you spoil that movie? You've had a, a decade. The movie ends, Batman takes the bomb that blows up, you think Batman's dead, and the movie ends with this scene that's been foreshadowed earlier in the movie where Alfred goes to this vacation spot and he looks over and he sees Bruce Wayne sitting there with Selena Kyle, happy, peaceful, and, 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 and instead of, the sorrow of thinking he's dead, he realizes that, that Bruce has finally done what he needed to do and he's living a happy life. He's not weighed down by the sorrow of everything. And there's this debate amongst fans, is that scene real or is Alfred imagining that? Now you get the nonsense of this, like why on earth are fans debating this? Like this is, just seems dumb to me. But it's David, and so they go and they ask the director, what's the answer, Christopher? And Christopher's answer is this. It's not my place to say, that's for the fans to decide. Now I said it's simplified, it's actually a little more colorful than that in terms of what he says is, I as the director, it doesn't matter what I think because it's, I don't determine what it means. That's literary deconstruction in a film. Actually it does, Christopher, is it literal or imaginative? You decide because you're the creator of the work. So understand, we arrive at relativistic interpretations of scripture because we use this, what does it mean to me? The question should never be, what does it mean to me? Now we can ask, how does this apply to you? Certainly certain verses can have a heightened meaning to you in terms of they hold a special place because God used it to carry you through something. Or, but you and I don't ever get to decide what a Bible verse means. That's God, because God wrote it. The last danger is this, overconfidence with scripture. It means when I come and I'm trying to interpret, I already think I know it all. And so I, I, I in my pride, miss stuff or misinterpret stuff or grace goes to the humble, not the proud. The only path to growing through his word is through humility. So those are the dangers. Here are the keys to interpretation. This is what's on your sheet. There's five keys to interpreting things correctly. The first is content. 
And content is really everything we looked at last week with observation is content. Content is when you open up your Bible to a passage and you begin thoroughly asking questions of the passage. Who, what, where, when, why, what does it mean? This is when you're looking for the things that are emphasized, repeated, related, alike, true to life. This is when you're observing and processing and and taking in and, and just seeing what all is there. You are seeing the content. This is where you, when you're digging into the, the terms that are used, the words, the phrases, the sentences, the, the paragraphs. This is when you're, you're, you're going, what, what does this word mean? What does this word mean? And, and obviously, what does this word mean really it means, what does this word mean in the original languages? But let me give you a caveat because most of you don't know Greek or Hebrew, and it's okay that you don't know Greek or Hebrew. Because we do have, provided you have a really good, solid English translation, and we'll cover that another week of what, how do we figure that out. If you have a good, solid English translation, you have a translation in our language that reflects what those word means. Now let me give you this proviso. What that should mean then is when you see a word in, in English, you can look it up in a dictionary and that will help you understand some of what that word means. Here's my caution. When translators pick English words, they are doing so not by how we use them in everyday slang, but by what they mean in terms of their true dictionary definition. And there's a lot of words that we use in our everyday slang more than their dictionary definition. And so when we read it in scripture, we're prone to maybe go over here. We need to be careful to go there. It also means when you look up a word in a dictionary, make sure you have a really good English dictionary. Not all English dictionaries are the same. Make sure you have one that's very um, technical. It just gives you really solid sound. This is what that word means. But this is where we look at words. What do they mean, the terms? You know, think about Philippians. When we're in Philippians and we've seen, uh, we've seen these words uh, uh, pointing to citizenship, pointing to um, military language, athletic language, that can mean one thing, but then when you understand, wow, this word means this, and in Latin, Philippi was a Roman territory. It was highly patriotic in terms of its military. It was highly athletic in terms of its culture. It was, that's all falls under content. This is where you're asking those questions, making those observations. Next is context. What goes before the passage? What comes after the passage? Where is that passage placed in the book? And there's five kinds of context to look for. One is literary context. What we mean by that is that that word is part of a phrase, which is part of a sentence, which is part of a paragraph, which is part of a book, which is part of scripture. The context of those things, where does it flow? What is there? Here's a great example, Jeremiah 29, 11. I always pull it out to a college student, say how many of you got a graduation card with Jeremiah 29, 11? It's always 100 out of 100. Um, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you hope, plans to prosper you in the future, not to harm you. It's a great verse. And most of the time when we put it on graduation cards, we rip it out of context. That verse is not a promise to you and I that God is gonna give us a really happy dory life. That verse falls in a passage, Jeremiah 29, where the literary context is the people of Israel are in captivity in Babylon, they don't like it, and false prophets are saying, don't worry, God's about to send us back home. 
And so they're going, great, then we're not settling. We're not really gonna receive this act of discipline. We're just gonna keep our bags packed and go. And what God says is, those guys are selling you a load of lies. You're staying here for 70 years. So unpack your bags, let your kids get married, start settling in, seek the good of Babylon because as Babylon prospers, you'll be safe. If they fall, you won't be safe. And understand this, as you are here suffering in exile out of discipline, understand this. I know my plans for you and they are ultimately not to harm you. So submit to my discipline. That's what that verse falls. That's literary context. Where does this fall in the course of the text? Historical context. When when is this event taking place? Where does this passage fit into the story? What else is taking place in the world at this time? Here's a great example. Think about Galatians when Paul makes the statement, now in Christ there is therefore no more slave nor free, male nor female, uh, Jew nor Greek. What he's stating is these worldly divisions that we divide over in Christ all are valued and we are all equally kneeled at the foot of the cross. But that was said in a time when free men had these rights and slaves had none, when men had these rights, when women did not, when the Jews were this, the Gentiles were this, and there was this conflict and he's writing it to a a congregation obviously mixed of all those And when you factor in what culture would have felt like at that time, and he says, you as a church don't get to divide over those things. You must be one family. What does that mean? That's what we mean by historical context, understanding those things in light of where they fall in history. Cultural context. Are there cultural things in the passage? Let me give you a great example. Uh, Revelation 2 through 3, the, the, the seven letters to the seven churches, the part of Revelation that I'm okay with really teaching thoroughly. The rest of it's super frightening and confusing until you get to the end. Um, I'm kidding, it's not frightening and confusing in Christ. Um, Confusing, yes, not frightening. Um, Those letters, when you read what's written to each of those cities, there's things that to you and I, we go, okay, that kind of, that if you do your homework on each of those cities, Every single word is chosen with great intention to reference something in those cities. Let me give you one example. How many of you know uh, Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're neither, I wanna spew you out of my mouth. And stereotypically, I'm not accusing anyone here of doing this, I'm just saying stereotypically, that's what we say. Jesus either wants you on fire for him or he wants you not on fire at all, but don't cut this this lukewarm stuff out. Now let's process that logically for a second. Jesus either wants you on fire or not on fire at all. He either wants you to know him or not know him. When is that ever okay in scripture? Jesus only wants you knowing him and on fire. What is actually going on there? The hot waters were relaxing and healing and the cold waters were refreshing and drinking. Bingo. And the church in Laodicea set in between two cities, one of which had access to natural warm uh, healing sauna waters and one of which had access to cool water that was healthy for drinking. So when Jesus says, I wish you were hot or cold, what he's telling the church in Laodicea is, I wish you were useful for something, but your sin is so great, you're not useful for anything and I wanna spew you out. But you don't get that if you don't know the cultural context. That's what cultural context is. Geographic context, what is the geography of the place? Think of passages like uh, the storms on Galilee. Now you can understand the storms on Galilee if you don't know the geography, but if you know the geography, those great storms that happen out on the Mediterranean Sea because the, 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 
The width of the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee is so small. Those storms don't have time to dissipate before they hit the Sea of Galilee, which is surrounded by mountains. And so storms on the Sea of Galilee are violent due to the geography. How does that help us just see and process what's there? Theological context. That digs into what did the author of this know about God? What's the relationship of his readers to God? Are, 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 would the audience have known back here in Exodus what Paul knew over here on the other side of the cross and the resurrection? That's a theological context. This is all context. Comparison. Compare scripture to scripture. Uh, I think a great Bible, just doing some practical Bible stuff. My, my cross reference is at the bottom in my Bible. Some of your Bibles, it'll be in the middle. Some of your Bibles may not be a cross reference Bible. I always encourage everybody to have a Bible that is a cross reference. A cross, I was doing this today in preparation for Sermon Sunday. I was going through uh, Philippians 3 and I was looking at where does, where does my Bible provide a cross reference on some of these words to other passages the same word is used in so that I can compare and get a feel for how is this word used elsewhere? How is this, compare scripture to scripture, use those cross-references, not just that, but, but look, how is a term used in that writing? Don't just look up the definition of a term. I'll give you a great example. Uh, Hebrews chapter six. How many scholars in here know the debate over Hebrews six? Can you lose your salvation? Of course, the answer is no, you can't lose your salvation. But we typically have one of two interpretations. Either you read that passage and you go, wow, I can lose my salvation. Or you come to this other side and you go, wow, I can't lose my salvation. This is talking about people who were never saved in the first place. And that's where I used to fall until I really had to do my homework. And one of the things that shifted me to a position that's not, it's, it's there, it's not crazy, but it's just not as, as common it seems like, which is that passage is talking about real believers who are refusing to grow into maturity and if we put off God's leading us to grow into maturity, there comes a point where we begin to forfeit eternal reward. Not heaven, not our salvation. But you and I are rewarded as believers for the faithfulness of our life inside of salvation. And all of a sudden, but here's where the key that helped me start to see that. It's when I looked at all of the words used, how the author of Hebrews uses them throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews. And what I discovered is some of these other interpretations make those word mean, th mean things that they could mean broadly, but that author never uses them to mean. That's what we mean by, that's comparison. It's helpful to compare. What does scripture, what, what does scripture say about scripture? Culture. It's helpful to understand culture. How many times have Bethany and I both heard in the book of Ruth that when Ruth went and laid at the feet of Boaz, that's a sexual encounter except that culturally it's not. They didn't do anything sexually. But you gotta know culture to do that. Let me give another example. How many of you know the famous painting of the Last Supper? Right? What's the problem with it? One, all the guys are pale, pasty, Anglo-white, and none of them would have been in real life. Two, they're all sitting up at a table when culturally they all would have been reclined on their side in each other's chests. Three, have you ever noticed the whole back of the painting is an Italian villa? Now, I'm not knocking the painting, but that's a great example of a way that we have come to view a certain thing that's not at all impacted by the real culture. 
So having a cultural idea of what is there. And then the fifth thing is consultation. Consultation, what resources do you have accessible to you? Obviously your Bible is first and foremost. It's helpful to have a good study Bible. You can also find an interlinear Bible where it'll have the English translation and the Greek or Hebrew and so you can kind of see how it flows together even if you can't read Greek or Hebrew. Concordances, most of our Bibles have a small concordance in the back. Or maybe I should use, somebody may think like an index tells you where, where a certain word is used in various places. Well, you can get a full concordance for whatever translation you have, a full concordance. So instead of looking up in my concordance and going, oh, my concordance shows 15 references for the word love. You get a full concordance, it's gonna be like 700 references to the word love. You know, it's gonna be everyone in there. And so you can go through, it helps you really pull in and look at what do words mean in various places. Bible dictionaries. Bible dictionaries are wonderful helps. You're gonna start reading the book of Ephesians and you go, well, I don't know anything. How am I supposed to know anything about the culture of Ephesus? You get your Bible dictionary out, you go to the ease, you look up Ephesus, it'll tell you everything you ever wanna know about Ephesus. And that'll provide you cultural context and awareness as you read through the scripture. Atlases, both your maps in the back, but you can actually get separate Bible atlases. Uh, and then, and last but not least, certainly uh, there are commentaries over individual books. By the way, when I uh, finish here in a minute, uh, I've brought various versions of all sorts of resources up here on the table. If you just want to come by and, and just have an idea of what's out there, and I'll explain what they are here in a second. But um, if I don't say it now, I'll forget to do it later. Okay, last part as we finish this out for interpretation. What we need to understand with Scripture, Scripture was authored by God through human authors. And God used their gifts, their talents, and their personalities, their settings and places of writings, and he even used literary genre to write the Bible. So there are different kinds of biblical genre. Not all scripture is the same kind of genre. Here's what I mean by that. Psalms is poetry. Isaiah is prophecy. Daniel is half narrative, half prophecy. Genesis is narrative. The gospels are gospel. Acts is historical narrative. Romans is a letter. There's different genres and in different genres, different ways of writing are used. No different than if you and I read today, if you and I were to read a, a true hard biography versus reading, uh, versus reading a play of Shakespeare. They may use the same words, but they may be used in totally different ways in terms of how we understand them because there's a genre at play. So let me just walk you briefly through. This is the part where we could come back and spend weeks walking through. We're just gonna overview it real simply here. I'm gonna keep it real simple, but just, just not. So here's the major types of genre, narrative. Narrative. It's a broad category in which the story is prominent and includes historical accounts. There's a plot, characters undergo psychological and spiritual development. Certain events are selected, certain events are left out, certain events are contrasted and compared. Examples of narrative in scripture would be Genesis through Ezra. It'd be the, it'd be the gospels as a type and the book of Acts. The reason I say the gospels as a type is sometimes you'll hear people call the gospels Jesus's biographies. I do not like when we say that because it opens us up for, for some, some hard questions because the gospels are not a biography like you and I think of a biography. If you come to my house, I've got biographies on people. I, I recently pulled one out of a biography on Reagan. If you read that biography on Reagan, that biography seeks to be a, a 
event by event account from the day Reagan took his first breath to the day he died. That's not what a gospel is because not all the events in the gospels are in chronological order. They're in a theological order. Doesn't mean that they're not true. Doesn't mean they're not accurate, but the purpose of the gospels is to give a certain kind of biography. It's more of a theological biography trying to drive a certain point that is that Jesus is the long awaited Messiah to a certain group of people. And that's huge, right? The gospel of Matthew. Matthew doesn't really explain any of the Jewish things in it. Why? Because Matthew is writing Jews. They didn't need explanation for what the Feast of Booths was or what Passover was. You get to John, John's totally different, but, and he's using a lot more philosophical. Why? Because he's writing Gentiles. And John even tells you his purpose. The things I've, I've, I've come to, to, to do here are so that you might believe in Jesus as the Christ. So the gospels are a type of narrative that we truly just call, what, are, what genre are the gospels? They're the gospel genre. I mean, that's literally what we call it. Like they just give them their own category. Prophecy, or sorry, wisdom literature. It's a broad category and where someone with wisdom seeks to relate that wisdom to those who are uh, younger, not necessarily in age, but just younger in wisdom. We see the use of parables. We see observations on, on fundamental aspects of life, birth, death, work, money, power, time, and we see, we see the basis of things appealed on human experience. This is Job, this is Psalms, this is Proverbs, this is Ecclesiastes. Inside of wisdom literature, there's two main categories, poetry and proverb, poetry and proverb. Poetry are intended many times to, be, to always be spoken aloud, but to be sung. There's an emphasis on cadence and sound of words that really sometimes doesn't translate over well to English because it wasn't written in English, it was written in Hebrew. We see a lot of vivid imagery and symbolism. There's a high appeal to emotions, which is why we connect with them so well. Proverbs are short, pithy statements of moral truth. They reduce life to a very simplistic black and white category. They often use parallelism, this statement and then this statement. And they use a heavy use of, of metaphors and similes. And understand the challenge with Proverbs are, Proverbs are general statements. Some Proverbs are meant to be interpreted as a promise. Some Proverbs are meant to be interpreted as a generally true statement for anybody who would follow it. And that's key because sometimes in Proverbs, some of those statements that are meant to just be general statements, if we manipulate them into a promise that they weren't intended to be, and then that doesn't happen, we now think God gypped us. And I'll give you one of the debates that's there. We all know the proverb, train up your children in the way they should go and they will not depart from it when they are old. Is that a promise or a general statement? Because if you say it's a promise, then what do you do to the parent who, who truly not that they were perfect, none of us are perfect, but really did raise up their children in the way they should go. Well, then God, you lied. So we've gotta be real careful with Proverbs. Proverbs are a place where an interpretation, people can really rip some things out of context. So understand, many are simply just general statements that are generally true because God is God. Some are promises, but not all. Prophecy. Prophecy, uh, we tend to think of prophecy as telling the future. The majority of prophecy is actually speaking God's truth forth to the present situation, calling people to obedience. That's what the majority of prophecy is, which is why you should not be afraid of biblical prophecy. 
If you don't often spend time reading the prophets of the Old Testament, you are missing encountering God in mighty ways. We see God's heart for justice. We see God's character on just full display. And I remember discovering the prophets in college and, and, and just I mean, my, to this day, my favorite portion of scripture is the second half of the book of Isaiah. Oftentimes, when I don't know where to read, that's where I go every time. Because the pictures of who God is and who Christ is there. Mm. So the prophecies, they're authoritative presentations of God's will and words. They're, they're intended to be corrective, to motivate change through warnings. We see prophecy Isaiah through Malachi. Parables, parables we see inside of the gospels. Parables are, are brief oral stories that illustrate a moral truth. They usually rely on, on stereotypical characters and they present scenes common to every day of life. And here's the key with parables. Parables have one point. But oftentimes when we read parables, we will start to like, well, this person must mean this and this person's symbolism for this. And that's not what a parable is. A parable is a short, pithy story designed to get you to understand one point. So think of the Good Samaritan. What's the point? Jesus, who's my neighbor? Let me tell you who your neighbor is. Your neighbor's everybody. Even the Samaritans that you despise. And in this, in this story, what I want you to understand, the reason the Samaritans is a hero is because you are ignoring your neighbor. Parables. Uh, what we call epistolatory. That would be the letters of the New Testament. These are the ones that are probably the easiest for us to process. They're carefully reasoned, arguments of explanation. Terms, their terms are crucial. They build a logical, compelling argument and climax. The aim of the letter is to get us to agree and then to act correctly in light of that, that truth. This is the Pauline epistles, Romans through Titus, the general epistles, Hebrews through Jude. And then lastly is apocalyptic literature. Parts of Ezekiel, parts of Daniel, all, of, uh, all but two chapter, or three chapters of Revelation. Apocalyptic, dramatic, highly symbolic material, vivid imagery, events take place on a global scale. It's a cosmic struggle of good versus evil. And in apocalyptic literature, that is prophecy for things that have yet to come. That's what makes it so challenging to interpret it. Because it's things with which we have limited knowledge. Now there's various ways that we, we interact with those. So what we're gonna do is, um, we're gonna pick up on how to read those genres. That's where we're gonna pick up next week. We're gonna pause right here. We'll have a little bit of interpretation next week and then we'll pick up with application. How do we apply this correctly? Um, but it's vital you and I interpret scripture rightly because when we interpret scripture wrongly, that's where the danger comes in. For us, for those we teach, um, so it's vital that we interpret it correctly. So let me tell you real quick uh, what these resources are that I've brought up here. A couple of these are books on just, if you wanna know more on how to read, read your Bible. In fact, this is Howard Hendricks living by the book. A lot of the format of what I've walked through last week, this week, and next week comes from Howard Hendricks. It's, it's great, gives you great things. There's two, two books on here, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth and Read the Bible for Life. Both of these are books that will to walk you through how to read and the different genre of scripture correctly so that you don't, get, you don't get confused. If you're really endeavoring to be more academic, this is a introductory textbook to biblical hermeneutics how to interpret scripture correctly. So if you're really interested, go there. Uh, these are both two really good Bible dictionaries. 
This one's really thorough, but it's all in black and white and few pictures. This one's really good, has lots of color-coded things and color pictures. So depending on how you're wired, there you go. Both are really good. And then I also brought out here, if you want to see, uh, I actually brought out a full Bible atlas. That's a standalone Bible atlas, not just the standard eight maps in the back of all our Bibles that someone came up with in like the 1950s because they all look nearly the same, uh, regardless of your translation. I don't know how that works. Don't know the history there, but that's what those are. So if you want to come by and flip through those or take pictures, if you're curious and want to be able to do more in-depth study on that. So... Um, let me pray and close us out and uh, feel free to stay and linger and um, we will see you Sunday. Father, thank you for your word. And God, thank you that your word, um, God, your word means what it means. It's why we can stand firmly on it. When you say, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, the reason we can confidently as sons and daughters Saved by grace through faith. The reason in a world of chaos, I can stand and go, you know what? God is with me. He's with me. He's present with me. He is with me, leading and guiding, protecting, moving, enabling. The reason we can stand firm on your word, God, is because you said it. It means what you say it means, and, and, and it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't change. So thank you that your word is able to be understood and able to be interpreted rightly. And Father, we are the beneficiaries of so many other wise and faithful and spirit-led brothers and sisters who have faithfully interpreted your word and passed down the teachings to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Just as you instructed the apostles to do, just as Paul instructed Timothy to do, and so on and so on and so on. So Lord, thank you that your word can be interpreted rightly. We're not having to play a guessing game. We're not having to go on some crazy quest. So Lord, may we be a people, Holy Spirit, who, who, who interpret your word to mean what you mean it to mean. And may we be people, Lord, as we move into next week, who don't just stop with interpreting your word correctly, but have, having interpreted it correctly, we go out and live a life faithfully applying it. By your grace and power, Lord, in our lives. So Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the fellowship. May we be found on our knees looking up to you, Jesus. You are our hope. It's in your name we pray, amen.